like house rules or renovation rescue or backyard blitz, those type of things where you just um, see people come in and take something that was been totally let go and they just transform it into something amazing. Sam's got a hand up, she's probably put in and Lauren, there's a few of you who do like those shows. Sometimes I think they're a bit overrated because they tell you there's going to be some massive blow up, you know, that's the ads for the show, then you get to that night and you're watching and say, oh, it was just like a storm in a teacup. Anyway... You do see some great stuff there where they take very plain and simple rooms and some houses and they go through a whole transformation process into something really, really special. Some of the best shows, I think, are when people are chosen randomly, uh, various couples or various people who are not really connected to the show, and they're sent away for the weekend, so they leave Friday morning and they sort of come back on the Sunday afternoon and these people come back and in the meantime, all the couples or the transforming people have moved in and totally renovated their house Every room, probably often the backyard's been done as well. It's just like an absolute renovation from top to bottom. The couple don't know anything about it at all. They just arrive back Sunday afternoon and the cameras obviously are all set up and they come in and they just see it all absolutely like, hey, I've never seen this before and they're overwhelmed with tears and all types of things like that. But they come back and the work has all been done. It's actually, they left on Friday, it was looking like this and they come back Sunday and it looks like this. Total job completed total job finished. All they need to do now is just move in and live in it. A job that's been completed and finished. And Jesus here today is also going to talk to us today about the cross when he utters this word, it is finished. Nothing else left to do. It is finished. Come now and live out the truth of the cross uh, as he has performed for us on the cross. So if you've got your Bibles, let's go to John 19. Just a couple of verses for us to read. 28 through to 30. John 19, 28 through to 30. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Father, we uh, want to give you thanks and praise today as we come and reflect upon these words that Jesus, your uh, glorious son, uttered 2,000 years ago, Lord, but he said, it is finished. I ask and pray now that Holy Spirit, you would come this morning and help us to grasp what Jesus is saying here as we think about the cross and think about the situation and circumstances that are surrounding this whole episode here. God, I pray that your spirit would work in our hearts a deeper and growing appreciation for the cross. That, Lord, we would truly never leave the cross. That, Lord, as that song says, that we will cling to the cross. And that, Lord, someday we'll exchange it for a crown. Father, today I pray, uh, do this uh, for your glory and for our good. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, what we have in the Christian faith are really important key doctrines or truths that we believe. You could call them foundational doctrines, uh, foundational truths that really do build the bedrock of our faith in what we believe and how we uh, live and practice out our Christian faith. Uh, These are the absolute truths of the Christian faith 
that we call here at Exchange closed-handed or not negotiable beliefs. We don't budge on these beliefs. They are so important that we don't actually move on those beliefs. These are the types of truth, types of belief, that if you remove them out of the system, what you believe in then, the whole structure begins to fall down. If you pull out these key planks or pull out these key foundations, a bit like you see those big supporting pillars under a bridge. If you're to pull those supporting pillars out, the bridge will just actually fall into the river or the ocean or whatever it's uh, crossing. Uh, These are the foundational truths, the foundational principles. And the one that we look at today is a huge doctrine or truth that supports the gospel of Jesus Christ. This truth is brought to bear early in the Bible and then has continued to be unpacked all the way right throughout Scripture. If you take this truth away that we will talk about today, the Bible will actually just collapse into a waste of ink and paper if we are to take this truth out and not hold on to it firmly with our lives. This massive doctrine or truth is the death of Jesus Christ on the cross at Calvary. If we are to take out the message of the cross the whole of the gospel falls into nothing. The whole of the gospel amounts to nothing if we are to take out the message of Jesus Christ and the cross. If we are to take this message of the cross out of the gospel, the whole problem of our sin still sits fairly and squarely upon our shoulders. It hasn't been dealt with. It hasn't been removed. It's unresolved if we are to take out the cross of Jesus Christ. The substitutional death of Christ on the cross is a closed-handed, it's a not negotiable truth of a true evangelical Bible-believing church. If we compromise on the cross, we all compromise on the whole of the gospel. And this is precisely where John is headed today here in John 19. We are at the crucifixion of Christ. We've worked a long way up through this and John's now approaching the very end of his account of the life of Christ, and we are now at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. This form of death by the Romans is probably the most sadistic and merciless type of punishment and painful death you could ever possibly imagine or experience. Uh, They say they learned it from the Persians or or the the Medes uh, a few hundred years before this, and they just perfected it to a whole new level of pain and uh, barbarous activity. The cross was reserved for the lowest of low in society. It was for the worst of people where the cross was brought out to be an instrument of punishment. Perhaps today an example of someone who you may want to put on the cross or society today may want to put on the cross is somebody who would be guilty of uh, raping and murdering small children. You would think they are just horrendous and heinous crimes. Someone like that deserves the worst of punishments. That gives you a picture here of the type of criminal or the type of person that the cross was reserved for in its form of punishment. It was for the worst of criminals that society had known. So John is now going to describe for us the events here of Jesus' death to continue to build our faith in who he is as the Son of God and what he has done for us uh, as in his role as the Messiah and in his role as our Saviour, as we think about these uh, events here of the cross. Firstly, though, as we begin to explore this, let's ask ourselves, why does Jesus have to die? What is the purpose of that? Why does he have to die on a cross? Why does Jesus have to die such a barbaric death? And what is that connection to our sin in relation to the cross? 
What I'll do is I'll just give us a few broad points here about sin and death and not go into it in a detailed way. Just maybe um, give us some bigger points to look at and that'll help hold together as we get towards the end of the talk and we talk about here this phrase that Jesus utters, it is finished. God is a perfectly holy being that is beyond our comprehension. We cannot comprehend the holiness of God. It's just impossible for us in our broken state to to grasp it because there's not one fibre of God's being that is tainted or contaminated by evil. There's nothing about God in any way that we could possibly imagine that is tainted or contaminated by evil. Everything about God is good and everything God does is good. There's nothing evil whatsoever about God. God in his perfection creates mankind in perfection at the same time, right back in the garden with Adam and Eve. We are perfect beings living in a holy and pure relationship with God right back at the beginning of time. Uh, God gives Adam and Eve one law of obedience and we find that in uh, Genesis 2, 16 and 17. He gives them one law of obedience. He says, do not, you can eat of anything you like in this garden except for one tree. There's one tree in this garden you cannot eat and uh, the day you do eat of that, you will die. You will die. Well, what do you know? One chapter later, they can't help themselves. They fall for the Satan's deception and uh, Adam and Eve go and eat of that tree. What happens after that? Well, they didn't die physically because God comes down and communes with them. They didn't die physically. But spiritually, something has died within them. Spiritually, something has disconnected now within them. They are now separated from God and they no longer enjoy this harmonious, perfect and pure relationship they once enjoyed. Prior to that disobedience, they lived in perfect harmony with God, connected with God in purity. They've disobeyed God, they've now broken that relationship and now it's uh, suffering because of their disobedience. But even here, there's a connection that God makes between disobedience to him, which is sin, and that connection then becomes with death. If you're to follow through the story there of Genesis, you see God kills some animals and he uses those skins to clothe Adam and Eve. So straight away, for the first time in their lives, Adam and Eve actually confront death. God's killed some animals, so he's actually bringing to bear into their minds now this connection here between sin and death. When we disobey God, something within us dies. The rest of the Bible then goes on about increasing, giving us an increasing picture here of this idea of the depth of our sin before the face of our holy and perfect creator, God. Ezekiel in the Old Testament, it captures this for us. He says in Ezekiel chapter 18, Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. There's a direct connection that God gives us here that sin uh, equates to death. And then Paul picks it up in Romans for us. As the Bible continues to keep unpacking it for us right throughout, in Romans 6.23, a very familiar verse, for the wages of sin is death. Pretty straightforward there. There's no messing up with uh, or misunderstanding what sin equals to. Sin is equal to death. The penalty of sin before a perfect, just and holy God is death. Sin can only be paid by death. So why does Jesus die on a cross? Why couldn't he just die in his sleep somewhere really peaceful and do the same thing for us? 
Why couldn't he just go to sleep one night and he just dies in the middle of his sleep nice and peacefully and he wakes up the next morning and he's dead and he's still done the same work for us as far as dying for us. Why does Jesus have to have a horrific, graphic and painful death in such a repulsive manner? Why has it got to be this bad? Why has it got to be this ugly? When Adam and Eve sinned before God, when they ate that apple and they disobeyed God and they had their now spiritual, as it were, connection broken between themselves and God, we can see in Genesis 3, if you follow that story on, that God placed a curse upon the world, the place where he had created for them to live. God willingly, God willingly put futility, frustration and difficulty upon all of creation. That was the outworking of that curse. And we see it today. We see it there as he said to Ain, uh, Ain, Eve. I'm not sure who Ain was, but let's call her Eve. Eve, childbirth pain. Now, we've had a couple of ladies who have given birth to uh, children in the last few months. Is it a fun, happy time? Probably not for many respects. There's fun and happiness at the end of the event, but there's a fair bit of pain and discomfort to go through. That's part of the curse. Cancer is part of the curse. Weeds are part of the curse. Drought, floods, frustration of all types and kinds are all part of the curse that God's willingly placed upon this earth. And they are there for a vivid reminder that we are living in a broken world in a broken relationship with God. We are living under a curse that God has placed upon this world because of our rebellion before him and because of the sin that we have committed. So Jesus dies this horrific death on a cross to bear that curse for us, to truly represent the depth of sin in all that it's done in in an affront to a holy God. Jesus dies as someone who is cursed. Jesus dies as a criminal and he dies a criminal's death. In Galatians 3, Paul points us towards that. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. So that's all this frustration Sickness, pain, death and anything else you can think of in this broken world. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus truly takes our place on the cross, bearing our sin and bearing our death, dying a criminal's death, bearing the curse that has, we have brought into this world by our rebellion before God. Jesus dies this horrific death this criminal's death, because he's bearing the curse on our behalf. So that's sin and that's death, how it's connected there in some broad brush strokes. All the gospel writers end their accounts with the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is no exception. If you read through Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, they all get to the point where they actually culminate in the death of Christ and the resurrection of Jesus as well. And John is no different to the rest. He's working to the cross right throughout his account here, as he writes to us and puts down these details and these facts inspired by the Holy Spirit to tell us about Jesus. Let's quickly scan back through some of the references that John points to as we see him leading and building all the way to the point of the cross. John 3 verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That's pointing to the death that Jesus will die. John 6.51 I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus is talking about there the giving up of his life in death. John 7, 33, 34. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little while, a little longer. And then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Jesus again is referring to his death. 
John 8, 28. So Jesus said to them, when you've lifted up the Son of Man, then you'll know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. Again, Jesus' death. John 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Self-explanatory. Jesus is talking about his death. Uh, Verse 18 of chapter 10. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father, Jesus is talking about his life. He lays it down, he takes it up upon his own accord. And in John chapter 12, And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So John's pointing us all the way through here, the book of John, to the death of Jesus Christ. There's no confusion here with John as he's actually writing about Jesus. He probably didn't fully grasp it as Jesus was saying these things and through the course and the ministry of Christ. But as he reflected back and the Holy Spirit gave him enlightenment, he actually saw the mission of the Messiah was to come and to die. And he points to it all the way through his book. He's totally on the ball now. He understands that Jesus was destined to die. And it's not only here that John sees the death of Jesus as part of the plan of God's rescue mission, John also sees it right throughout Scripture, not just where he's written. He sees it right throughout Scripture. And for him, right throughout Scripture was the Old Testament. That was the Bible for John. That was the Bible that he would have read. He saw that God's appointed Saviour was destined to die on our behalf. There's four times even in this chapter, we didn't read all the chapter, but there's four times in this chapter where John refers to Scripture out of the Old Testament that is actually pointing to directly the death of the Messiah. In uh, John 19, 23, 24, there's a, there's a, a, a passage there where the soldiers are sort of um, fighting over Jesus' garments and clothes. Back in those days when a criminal was hung on the cross, he was stripped naked and anybody could take the clothes. So what they did there was actually cast lots and they would say, okay, you win, you take the, the garment without ripping it in half. That's actually alluded to in the Old Testament. Uh, 28 and 30, we just read there before. Again, there's another point where he points to the scriptures, fulfilling of the scriptures. I thirst is something that's recorded in the Old Testament. And in John 19, 31 to 37, it says there that Jesus is pierced by the Roman soldiers. Pilate goes to order them to be brought down off the cross to break their legs so they can't hold themselves up and keep breathing. They go to Jesus and they see he's already dead and they, they uh, shoved a spear into his side and... Uh, that's what they did. And then also it says there that none of his bones were broken. Bones were broken. Two times in that section there are referring to Old Testament um, references about the Messiah dying. So John could see now everything was lining up. The cross was no accident. The cross wasn't plan B because plan A failed. It was always right from the start God's rescue mission to display his glory and to rescue mankind from this disastrous consequences of our sin. The Messiah has come to die. Let's now look at this saying here that Jesus picks up on in these couple of verses that we look at here as John's bringing us to the culmination of his book and pointing us here towards the death of Christ. There's a number of sayings that Jesus says from the cross, seven actually in total, and here's one that's recorded for us in these verses today, and particularly in verse 30, uh, it says there, "'It is finished.'" When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. 
What's really important for us to see here, there's nothing insignificant about Jesus whatsoever. Nothing insignificant about him at all. And when Jesus has this statement here, it is finished, it isn't just a throwaway line. Jesus isn't just trying to fill in some time on the cross before he finally gives up his spirit. What he says is very, very significant. And certainly as the cross, as God's pathway of his glory and salvation, what Jesus says here has massive implications. Three very simple words, but profound in what they are actually communicating to us. John actually sets the scene for us here as we begin to think about what's happening with these words at the start here in verse uh, 28. It says there, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, To fulfil the scripture, I thirst. So after this, there's a picture here that Jesus, who's in grotesque pain and excruciating agony, still has the presence of mind to know exactly what is happening here at this point. Jesus is fully in control of this situation. After this, Jesus goes to say that. He's fully aware of what's happening. What is this after this? What's happened in this after this? What does Jesus mean even when he says that? What has happened during the course of the cross is that the earth has been darkened for the last three hours. So in the course of events of the cross of Jesus Christ, particularly right at this point in time, the earth has been in darkness between 12pm and 3pm. They actually should have been the brightest part of the day when the sun's at its highest and giving us its most light. But between 12pm and 3pm, the world is shrouded in darkness. And there's very significant, this darkness here. This darkness is a picture here of the time that Jesus is bearing the weight of our sin. Jesus here at this point is bearing all of our disgust and our, and our vileness, vileness before a holy God in the sin that he's taking upon himself, which is our sin. In this darkness, God has turned away from Jesus, turned away his face from Jesus, and is now pouring his wrath upon Christ in our place because of our sin. God has withdrawn the light of his relationship and love from Jesus at that particular time and has now shrouded him in darkness as his wrath and anger towards our sin that is so offensive before our holy God is now poured upon Christ in our place. And in Matthew we see here Jesus makes another statement. He says at this particular time, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? indicating what's taken place here in these three hours of darkness. This is an incredibly dark time. But Jesus now, fully aware, is at the end of this darkness. He's at the end of this after this. When he makes this statement, it is finished. The word finished here, even again, has very significant meaning. It is not just a throwaway word. The word finished here means perfected or completed. It means to bring to an end or it it is accomplished. It is fulfilled. It's the same word they would use back in Jesus' time when they bought something off somebody and they were bringing like the final payment. I've finished paying for it. They would go and purchase whatever article or good they were wanting to purchase and they would bring the final payment to the person and they say, the debt has been paid in full. It is is finished. It's completed. It's final. Jesus is saying the same thing here about our sin. 
Jesus is saying the payment for our sin is paid in full. The debt is now cancelled. It is complete. It is finished. And what Jesus says in that is absolutely profound. Absolutely profound. He's saying that you or I have known important, really, really important. They were immersed in a works-based right standing before God. In other words, they thought the way to get right before God was to do a whole heap of good works and good deeds, to follow all the law of God and to follow through with all the sacrifices and uh, all the offerings they would bring to earn God's favour. So they were steeped in this. They were immersed in this, in doing good deeds to earn this place of rightness before God. And in a very real sense, they never felt they could be good enough for God. They couldn't do enough good things. Continually plagued by, I can't quite get it good enough. So they worked harder and harder and harder at pleasing God and trying to earn their salvation by doing and carrying out all these good works and this law-keeping. So Jesus cries out these very telling words in the face of all that. And Jesus said, it is finished. The debt of sin is paid in full. What you could never possibly do, Jesus has done. There's not one human being alive that can, by obedience or good works, please God enough where he would now grant them forgiveness of their sins because of these good works that they've carried out. And Paul says conclusively, as he gives this great unpacking for us in Romans, he says that no one can be justified or made right by the works of the law. In other words, I can do all the good deeds I want. But if that's all I'm going to offer to God, that will never make me right before God. So when Jesus says, it is finished... He's actually giving us the gospel. He is giving us their good news. And this is the good news of the finished work of Jesus Christ at the cross. Jesus has dealt with our sin once and for all. There's nothing else required to do or can be done because what Jesus has done has finished it. The people of John's day struggle with this truth. They really struggle with this truth of the cross. Paul addressed it when he, when he spoke to the Galatian church because in that church they were, they were trying to combine the cross of Jesus but also their good works and put the two together and somehow now that gets me salvation. That now gets me the forgiveness of my sins. It's like if I can just start with Jesus and then I can finish off with my good works, put the two together and now I'm saved. Paul deals with this. He says in Galatians chapter 1, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. What Paul is saying here, particularly that last bit, there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. They had people coming in and say, you need Jesus and you need good works and you need to put those two together and then, and then God forgives you. Paul's saying that's a different gospel. Actually says that's no gospel at all because there is only one gospel. And this is the struggle that they had. You see, if we try and add anything at all to gain our salvation other than what Jesus has already completed for us, what we are doing then is saying, Jesus, you are a liar for saying it is finished at the cross. You couldn't say it's finished if we're supposed to add good works to our salvation. 
What Jesus, you should have said is this. I have started it. Now you finish it. But Jesus didn't say that. He said, it is finished. The moment we try and add something to the cross, what we are saying is this. Jesus, you didn't do enough for me. You sort of got me to the line and now I've got to get myself over the line. If we try and add something to the cross in the way of completing our salvation, we are taking away from the glory of Christ at the cross if we think we've got to add something to what Jesus has already done. Jesus said, it is finished. The debt has been cancelled. Sin has been dealt with. So it's a vital message, the cross of Jesus Christ. It is a key foundational plank of a truly Bible-believing evangelical church. It's not negotiable. It is finished. It's a truth that we need to think on and reflect on every day. Every day we need to think about the cross and what Jesus has done for us there. I once heard a speaker tell us that we, don't, we, that we need to move on from the cross and move on to resurrection life. That's not true. That's not true. We need to stay with the cross as well as grasping the resurrection life, which we'll talk about that next week. We never leave the cross for the duration of our lives. It must be front and centre in our vision. You see, as we, as we keep the cross firmly fixed in our focus, it does wonders for us as we think about Jesus Christ and who he is and what he's done for us. We can be very prone to lose sight of the ugliness of our sin. That's a fault of our brokenness. We can easily downplay our sin. We can easily think our sin isn't that bad compared to others. My sin's not really that bad. I'm not like that guy over there who's just a filthy liar. He's just a born liar. I can't trust anything he says. I only lie a little bit and just to get myself out of trouble. And the lies I tell, well, they don't really hurt anybody. They're pretty harmless sort of lies. We sort of compare ourselves. And we justify why I can get away with my lying as opposed to this, you know, this born liar over there. The Bible simply tells us that all liars will go to hell. Because lying is an indication of an evil heart. But as we look at the cross and think about what Jesus has done there, we see this. Jesus has suffered and endured the agonies of hell for all the lies I've told. My lying isn't a nothing offence of little or no consequence. Not at all, is it that? You see, the cross of Jesus Christ should humble us to see the weight of our sin. That's something we should see as we look at the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ communicates to us that any sin, regardless of its size, has cost the life of Jesus. The tiniest, smallest lie or the largest lie. And we are completely foolish if we try and belittle our sin and downplay it and make it nothing and really try and convince ourselves that it's nothing to worry about. We delude ourselves when we do that. The cross tells us our sin is serious. The cross tells us the sin that we commit has cost Jesus Christ his life. That's something we need to see in the cross, when we are prone to be living proud lives and not dealing with our sin properly. 
But not only does the cross convey to us the enormity and the seriousness of our sin, but it also shows us what God has done about our sin at the very same time. It shows us the grace and mercy that God has poured out upon us through the death of his son. I've heard this statement a number of times over the years, and it sort of goes a bit like this. You know, I just don't feel worthy enough for Jesus. I don't feel good enough for God. You know, I'm just hopeless. I'm just weak. I just don't feel worthy enough to be a Christian. I, I just, I'm not good enough. Well, here's my response. Yeah, you're right. You're not worthy enough. You're not good enough. You are weak. And you don't deserve it. Actually, nobody's good enough. Nobody's worthy. Nobody deserves it. Everybody, the Bible tells us, everybody has fallen short of God's glory. Or everybody has fallen short of God's standard. Nobody's worthy. Nobody's good enough. But you see, here's where we look to the cross again. And as we look to the cross this time, we actually see my worthiness or my goodness doesn't come from me. Because if it was all up to me, I would fall and fail miserably. Because I'm not worthy and I'm not good enough. My worthiness or my goodness comes from Jesus who has taken my place upon that cross. That's why Jesus can say, it is finished. It's not about me. It's actually about Jesus. And I'm so glad it is. Because if it was about me, I would be a miserable mess, full of pride, thinking I can do it my way. And this is what happens. We can get weighed down by guilt about our unworthiness and begin to um, just allow Satan to pour all this guilt and unworthiness into our lives. All these crazy thoughts that come in that he tries to weigh us down. And then we allow this wrong thinking to take over in our heads. And before we know it, we work ourselves into this state of emotional confusion. Because I'm so weighed down in guilt. God doesn't want me. I'm useless and worthless. We look to the cross. And we see there that God loved me so much that Jesus took my place on the cross and he has washed away all of my sin. He's washed away all of my guilt. He's washed away all of my condemnation. And we can look at Romans 8 with Paul and he can say this, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's not up to me. Christ said it is finished. He has taken it all away. Here's a great story I heard about Martin Luther uh, a few years ago and it's it's a fantastic story to illustrate this point. Martin Luther had this vision or dream or or some really horrible experience one night. Uh, Satan comes into the room of Martin Luther where he is and he starts writing all of these sins of Martin Luther's on the wall. He just starts writing all these things all around him as Luther um, sits on a chair or lies in his bed and he's writing there bitterness, jealousy, gossiping, anger, stinginess, lusting, lying and theft. These big black markers, just writing all these words all around the room. And Satan pauses for a moment and Luther asks him, is there, is, is there any more? Satan picks up his black pen again and he writes in between all the gaps between the words, guilty, 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 guilty. 
and Satan finishes with all of Martin Luther's sins all around these walls. And the word guilty spread all around the words, in between the other uh, words. And Martin Luther stands up and he says, Cancelled by the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, It is finished. That is the most glorious thing we could ever possibly hear. Jesus has done what we could never, ever do. Not in a million years or a million lifetimes. When we look to the cross, we see the redeeming grace of Jesus Christ poured out upon us. We never leave the cross. That's exactly what John wants us to see today as we look here at Jesus dying in our place. He wants us to see the depth of the cross. He wants us to see that this is foundational to the glory of God. He wants us to see this is where our salvation and forgiveness come from is through Jesus Christ who says, it is finished. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you today for the words that your son uttered upon that cross. It is is finished. Lord, today I pray that you would uh, again open up our hearts and our minds and our eyes to see the wonder and the beauty of the cross of Jesus Christ. That Lord, our sin is horrible. Our sin is ugly. Our sin deserves everything that you pour upon it in the way of your wrath. Our sin is vile. Our sin is wretched. Our sin is deceptive. Our sin is filthy. Our sin is disgusting. But Lord, your grace and your love and your mercy in the forgiveness that you offer to us through the perfect life of Jesus shed upon that uh, cross is amazing. Because Lord, you wipe all of that vileness and disgust and filth away. Lord, I pray today that you would help those words to uh, ring in our ears in a faith-building way. Then when Satan comes in, Lord, and maybe even writes those sins that we've committed upon the walls of our house or wherever it may be, that Lord, we can stand up and say, it is finished. Jesus has finished the work of the cross in cancelling all of our sin. Lord, today for those who are struggling with um, pride, perhaps not even knowing that, Lord, they're... Um, overcome by pride and not dealing with their sin properly, I pray you would open up their eyes to see the cross, to see the horribleness of their sin and to bring them into repentance before you, Lord. Confession of that sin and to find forgiveness at the cross as well. For those, Lord, who are struggling with guilt, Lord, for those today who've come in and perhaps way laden down by the attack of the enemy and guilt has pulled them to the ground again, God, let those words ring in their ears, it is is finished. And Lord, let it take that burden of guilt off their shoulders and to know that they are free in Christ and that all that sin has been dealt with by him. Father, I pray that you would just continue to work uh, Calvary's truths deep into our hearts and that Lord, through that great faith would arise and great trust would arise and lives lived in holiness now and purity before you would be the response of understanding what has taken place through the cross And through the words of Jesus, it is finished. Father, we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. 
we're going to move to the communion now, so I'm not sure who's up for doing that. Let's stand together and we're going to sing Jesus, thank you. Jesus, thank you. 